episode four. Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of Looking Around the Corner. Today, uh, my guest is Zach Gleason. He is an entrepreneur uh, and uh, he is the founder of a company that was recently acquired uh, by the name of, I think it's called Your Loop. Your Loop, correct. Yep, Your Loop. And it, uh, is, uh, it, it is in the elder tech space uh, with senior living, which we'll go into in a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I actually met Zach uh, online, um, you know, through social media, and I thought his uh, history was very interesting. And I thought that it'd be a great discussion to talk about entrepreneurship, uh, the challenges that come with it, of course, uh, talk about things from potentially advice to investors as well that want to support founders, uh, some history about Zach himself, why he chose the entrepreneurial route, so to speak, as opposed to uh, what I call the W-2 route. <laughs> yep. And um, and then we'll get a little bit into uh, the elder elder tech, elder care space, and uh, uh, see what Zach's uh, perspective is on, on the future of that. So welcome, Zach. Awesome. I appreciate having me, Dan. Great. Thanks. Uh, so your background, I know you founded a few companies uh, in your um you know, in your lifetime. Yeah. Uh, but I, I thought what was very interesting was that your first job, or the, at least what I saw on your profile <laughs> on LinkedIn, was that you worked at, uh, let's see, what was it? It was Cold Stone Creamery, right? Cold Stone. And yeah. I was fired for excessive use of gummy topping. Was I have I had somewhere in a box was my official termination letter was a excessive use of gummy toppings after two days. It's fantastic. Wow. I put yeah, too many gummy bears on ice cream and yeah. I got you, you, you need to frame that letter. <laughs> oh, I do. I, I have it somewhere in a box that, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it, it's awesome. So uh, I, let me understand this. So how old were you when you, when you had this job? Uh, just turned 18. Okay. So just turned 18. Okay. Is this, is that your first job like ever or I second job? My first job, I worked at a pool supply uh, store in Concord, California, and I got uh-huh. chlorine poisoning. Oh, uh, uh, I ended up breathing in. My first boss, name was Corey, he's an awesome guy. Um, and uh, I ended up getting chlorine poisoning. I'm like, all right, so I'm not gonna do that. Like, like uh, let's go scoop ice cream. And I got fired <laughs> after two days for scooping ice cream. <laughs> so I, like, I, walk me through this. So you're you're at work. And, and so tell me the story. What, like, how, how'd your, I guess, boss or supervisor come approach you? And, and yeah, what was so- your reaction to this? Yeah, so I so I, I get a uh, I I leave leave my shift and I'm at a car dealer uh, buying my first car and I get a text message uh, basically saying thank you for choosing uh, Cold Stone uh, but uh, we don't think that you have a, a career in, uh, in in here anymore and thank you attached with a letter like my career was not scooping ice cream it wasn't I was I was like in high school it was a job like calm down assistant manager at Coldstone. like it's not a career yeah you yeah. pay me nine dollars to scoop ice cream and blend it together um and the official termination reason was excessive use of gummy topping like i got fired wow. for putting too many gummy bears on kids ice cream cones i guess i don't know <laughs> so so they essentially they fired you on a text message using text. yeah That's it was a text message it. Text so message no one actually like, called you. No, no one called, and I called him. He ducked my call, and then sent me sent me a PDF with like, "Here's here's your thing. You'll get your last. You'll, you'll get your first and last paycheck next Friday. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, awesome. Wow. 
So what did you learn from that other than not to put too many gummy bears on? Like the most unprofessional way. Like I was calling to ask questions like, hey, like why? Like duck my phone call. Like, like I've had to let a lot of people go uh, managing different engineering teams and stuff. Like open, honest, like, hey, this isn't working. Like, yeah. like let's, figure, let's solve a problem. Not like here's a text message. Here's your first and last paycheck. See ya. Wow. Yeah, and, and then I get, and then I guess then companies uh, then wonder like, oh, why why do employees not like us or or you know what why is there a bad reputation you know? Oh yeah, and like, especially in tech, like you hear horror stories from HR, uh, on, really? people working with working with HR. Like there was a great tw- uh, thread on Twitter the other day, um, of, like tell me your worst interview story. Like it's shocking how bad. HR is like like how bad a lot of HR people I know a lot of great HR people and a lot of awesome recruiters yeah like they're they're like it's just it baffles me how poor some people operate and then wonder why they can't keep talent yeah man that's it just I don't know it just almost seems like it just passed like it's a it's a decent thing to do for someone right like just from a human relationship type of thing like hey okay you know things are not working out but thanks thank you for it but you know to to get fired over a text message or, you know, people oh, ducking, that's just so head. unprofessional. Like an $8 and 75 cent an hour scooping ice cream over a text message and you and using, well, we don't think this is a, this will be a, a career path. No, really. Like, wow. I'm not interested in making a career at that point. That's when I realized yeah. like, I, I could make what I could make designing a website or building an e-commerce store um, uh, in like, four hours and I did in like four weeks at Goldstone and that's kind of what doubled down I was building your loop at the time uh this was more of a just a way to kind of make some money on the side but, yeah uh, it was uh yeah it, it, it was hysterical like everyone asked like what's for like I, I have that on my Twitter account I have that on my LinkedIn I've gotten so many like just cold emails from people like were you really fired for for gummy bears <laughs> yeah I actually was fired for gummy bears wow that's a cool story though man I mean you know it, it's it's definitely one you could tell at a party and I'm sure you're getting a great audience, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whenever we have parties again, I guess. You know? uh, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. So then, okay, so you, you, you moved on from your, your, your very brief career at, yeah. uh, at Coldstone. And then what did you do next? What was your next venture? So, uh, I, was, so I started building your loop in high school, kind of like just hacking around with uh, a friend of mine. And we were doing some some early games. We, we evolved from games education uh, and uh, and likewise. Um, but uh, like I worked the container. I worked in the container store afterwards, kind of still bootstrapping some stuff, figuring out how to raise VC, what VC was, mm-hmm. um, how to actually go raise capital. Yeah. My first pitch, I sat down with an angel investor, and he goes, "Well, how much you need to build?" And my friend and I at the time were like eighteen and looked at each other and went, "Like, how's seven thousand dollars?" Like we can build that. And he looked. He laughed at me. He goes, "You guys have great idea, but you guys have no idea what you're doing." Dude, <laughs> nope, not at all. Seven thousand sounded like a good number. So he's like, "No, you need like seven hundred thousand." Like, well, what are you gonna do with seven hundred thousand uh, dollars? And we ended up raising an awesome seed round, and uh, then subsequent rounds from some investors. But yeah, no, it was it was fun uh, having raised some VC while still working at Coldstone because uh, when like I wasn't trying much of a salary at all. Mm-hmm. that was investing like 90 something percent of everything into talent and platform. And my co-founder and I still had jobs on the side while we were still building just to kind of keep stuff moving. So, uh, you know, I'm always curious, you know, why, why some people become entrepreneurs and many others don't. Right. Yeah. So what, what was it about your mindset or what were you looking to do that 
that made you think that, you know what, it's better for me and, and you know, my co-founder to actually, you know, basically become business, small business owners, you know, that's basically what you are at, at first and, and, and not take the more tried and true path of becoming an employee somewhere else. So for me, it was kind of, I, uh, I wanted to build something mm -hmm. uh, that I knew I could, I didn't know what I wanted to build, but I wanted to build something. And for me, it was kind of one of those um, 18, 19, if I'm going to build something and fail, here's my shot. Yeah. Um, like, okay, I fail and I go to, I start college at 20. Awesome. Cool. It's still going to take me four years anyway. Like yeah. I'll be 25 with a degree and be caught up and cool. So for me, it was kind of opportunistically. I ended up moving to the East Bay my senior year of high school, mm -hmm. uh, junior year of high school. So my full senior year was in California from like a really small conservative farm town, in Illinois. Um, so it was like kind of culture shock and like everyone there was like tech. It was summer of 2012. So everything like Uber was just starting. I had some friends that were some like older friends out there that were, were in tech. I'm like, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw a problem and they encouraged me to uh, go build it and go see what I could see, what traction I could get. Another friend of mine just raised a few million dollar round. And uh, he's like, just go build. Like if you fail, you fail, but give it your best shot because I like what you're working on. So mm -hmm. I had a really great group of people around me that encouraged me to, to just take the jump. And do you think that uh, if you were anywhere other than in the you know Silicon Valley, San Francisco area, do you think that you would have, A, would you have gotten that type of encouragement? And B, do, do you think that any other ecosystem would have helped, you know, basically no. support I you? I would have gone through, gotten my BA and probably my JD. Um, but being out there, there's like this culture, especially kind of in the early uh, 2010s of like, just build it. Like, let's see what happens. Like mm -hmm. it, it, I, the, we were at what the iPhone four or five. So tech was still like the flashlight app was still a thing. So everything was fairly early and it was just kind of one of those opportunistic, just build and see what happens. And, and, and that gets me to thinking about the whole notion of, you know, how we think about failure. Right. Yep. And it's, and it's an interesting mindset that I think a lot of people have is that, you know, is, uh, is equating failure with losing. Yep. And, and, and to me, it's not the same thing. I, I think, you know, I've, I've failed many times in my life for yep. multiple different things. You know, in the first time I applied to medical school, it didn't work out. I didn't get in. And, you know, I could have just stopped right there. And yep. God knows there was enough people telling me like, hey, uh, maybe this is not your, you know, your cup of tea, so to speak, you know. And I was and I think the determinism and perseverance has a has a huge role in it. So what, what was, you know, what was your mindset in thinking about about this, you know, about the notion of failure. And do you think the way Silicon Valley thinks about the you know, acceptance of, okay, just build it. If it fails, fine, whatever. You learn something, you move on compared to maybe, you know, where you grew up. You know, you say, you know, yeah. in a conservative, you know, town in Illinois, which really could be the mindset of most anybody else in the United oh, yeah. States or in the world. Um, what do you say to founders that wrestle with that? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm in the, I prefer to kind of control my own destiny or work with people that have, that have similar, like, I'm not a process person by mm -hmm. any means. I may like build it, ship it. Um, it's a, uh, I think if for, for people that are wrestling with it, you have to decide, like, are you willing to fail and fail publicly? Like everyone will know that you failed. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's less of the conviction on the person but it's more the person's conviction on their idea. 
Um, A lot of people want to, I'm a founder, I'm an entrepreneur, like, cool. That's awesome. Understand you're going to fail and fail publicly and you yourself are going to go to your family Christmas party and people are going to ask you what happened. Do you have enough passion for that idea that to justify that, that, that you're willing to say, I was so, I was so bought into, here was my mission. My mission didn't work, but I, I still believe in my mission, even though my business failed or my idea failed. I think a lot of people, hey, I'm going to build a blog site. I'm going to go full-time on that. Well, what's your mission behind that? Are you doing it just so you can change your, your title on Instagram or Facebook to founder at X? Or do you, are you actually solving some problem? Um, and I think far too often I see companies tr- that try to, to, to try to, the founder wants to be known as a founder. The founder wants to be, well, I'm an entrepreneur. Cool. Um, but you have no mission. Like mm-hmm. you're wasting your time, in my opinion. I'm going to go build this stupid thing. I'm going to go build like a little blog site, but I don't really know what it is, but I can tell my, I'm a founder. Great. But <laughs> yeah, cool. Like you can buy a domain name and make it, make whatever you want. But a founder has to have a conviction on the idea to be able to sit in front of people and say, I failed because of X, Y, and Z, but I still believe it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. What, what do you say to people that, that have, um, that, that maybe were in your position, like you said, that you wanted to build something. And at, at the time you didn't know what exactly it was. And I, and I feel like there, there are people out there that they, they, they have this itch, you know, that the entrepreneurial itch that people talk about, but you know, they, they just, they're stuck. And they, they say, you know what? I, I, I don't like my job. I don't like to just be working for somebody or whatever. I want to build something, but I really, I can't find that, that one thing, you know, yep. to be like, I want to focus on this and this is going to be my passion. If I fail, I fail. At least I tried it. What do you say to those people that, because, you know, God knows, then they go for advice to others, right? Like in their friends or family circle, whatever. And more likely than not, people are going to be like, well, it's risky, you know, risk and failure and all these like trigger words almost, which are not really used properly, I think, you know? And uh, so what what do you say to that? So I I think, I think we're, we're at a really interesting point where, where someone can build something a whole lot easier now than you could have eight years ago, three years ago, with like the birth of, of Ondex no-code fellowship with, with no-code and let in or, or low-code platforms like Bubble. Um, you can stand an application up uh, in a couple hours mm-hmm. uh, and really experiment. You have awesome sites like MicroAcquire where you can buy existing software platforms, either code, no-code, light stuff, for two or three thousand bucks, and I think uh, we're, we're seeing the birth of kind of like this micro entrepreneurship, where like you can start something really small, um, and more and more companies are open to people working on kind of passion projects. Uh, it kind of goes back to Google's eighty twenty: um, work eighty percent of your job on job and experiment twenty percent of your time. And I think um, I think we're, we're starting to see more of that come into kind of larger corporate culture. So. If someone wants to go build something, doesn't know what to go build, start looking for problems that you're passionate about. Um, start looking for, for for things in your day-to-day life that you think could be built better. Uh, I'm I'm more of a tech e-commerce guy. I hate the word e-commerce, but I've made a few a few strategic plays over the years. Um, but uh, I I look at how 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 can software either um, increase the user experience, make a better user experience. Uh, can we solve? Is there a problem that just isn't being touched. And those are the, those places are where a lot of times you find the easiest, not use easy lightly, but the path of least resistance because you can solve someone's problem. I hate things where like, I don't have this problem, 
but it's a nice to have. I like building must haves or, uh, or really want to haves. Mm -hmm. And, and when you're, when you're thinking about these problems, you, I mean, you have a tech background, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, what do you say to people that want to have a tech-based solution, which nowadays, you know, everything's tech something, you know, and, but, but they, they have this apprehension saying that, okay, I don't, you know, I'm not a coder. I'm, and, and we talked about no code and low code, but I think a lot of, a lot of it is that meant that hesitation to be like, uh, okay, uh, I need a technical co-founder or I need someone who is tech savvy enough so that, you know, I may work on the, the marketing, the, the all non-tech portion of it, but then I have my you know tech person to whatnot. Um, where do people go to meet individuals like that if that wasn't their circle from the beginning? Yeah, so it really depends on the product. I think a lot of times people say, well, I need technical co-founder. Co a lot of times I hear that, I hear I don't actually want to learn what my company does. Mm -hmm. um, I want to build nice graphics while someone does the work. Or I want to build a marketing strategy while someone builds the product. A founder needs to be dangerous. You don't have to be the best engineer, engineer in the world, but you should be able to stand up. You should be able to be dangerous enough to stand up a website and be able to help your uh, your technical team with small issues. Um, otherwise, you're not. I'm a firm believer of like I think the, I think technical co-founders are the best co-founders. Uh, and uh, it's just in my experience, my things that I've I've backed those where I get my biggest wins because you need someone with that founding North Star mission that is able to translate that into a product. Now there are some don't get me wrong, there are some amazing business co-founders. There are some amazing non-technical founders. But having that having a technical background, I think gives you an advantage when you're raising capital and you're going to market because you understand how, how architecturally your platform is built. And uh, I think uh, there you can pick up like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, something where you can at least start to, to understand when an engineer says, I can't build X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand fundamentally how your product's built, how do you plan to lead that product? And a CEO is the head of product in an organization. So yes, you can have a VP of product, you have a director of product, but the CEO is gonna set that North Star. Mm -hmm. So uh, when, I, when, I, when I'm talking to people, I hear like non-technical co-founder, I need a technical co-founder. Cool, that's fine. Learn some code first. And then go hire someone, um, other or and go bring someone in. Learn some basic code and stand an MVP up in Bubble, uh, and see if it works. And, like I hear from a ton of of technical people, hey, I get pitched twenty app ideas. Hey, I want to build this. Hey, I want to build that. Hey, I want to build this. Mm -hmm. well, like you gotta, you have to be able to show something to those to that type of skill set, other than I have an idea and I want you to work for nine months, almost full time for free and some equity. Like, meet them halfway. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that you have to be a hardcore traditional coder. It's more like you want to be at least somewhat savvy with some of these platforms that are online that enable you at least like you get, you know, proof of concept or an MVP going. Exactly. Like it, like a good technical co-founder, in my opinion, should be a good investor. Mm -hmm. um, you have to convince them uh, that you have, a, you have conviction and some enough of a platform that it will be successful. Because because mm -hmm. engineers and technical co-founders are some of the most sought-after talent in the valley. Like mm -hmm. you have to convince them that it's worth joining your project and not making two fifty a year working at Facebook as uh, as an engineer. Like that's their trade-off. So um, if you're you're when you pitch it when you when you're recruiting a technical co-founder, you're pitching your first investor. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. And, and I, not a lot of people talk about that in that perspective that. You, they, you have to have them buy into your vision 
And, yeah. and, and I feel like, uh, you know, the discussions I've had with some founders, companies that I advise, they, they sometimes have a perspective of, hey, no, no, the, the investor is like over there, somewhere out there. And, yeah. you know, we, we've, I just got to get someone to handle this sort of back end piece of it, sort of, you know, so it, it, it's not a, I don't want to use the word equal, but it's, it's not a, it's not a relationship of parity. It's almost like someone is trying to just say, this is my company. And then you got this little, you know, you got the quote unquote little technical piece, but the technical piece is the company really exactly. at, at some point. You know. I, I, I see so many non-technical co-founders forget that they are running a technical company. Mm, and yes. like when a, a co-founder or a founder of a company is like, you spend the bulk of your time raising capital and recruiting and they are a very similar skill set. I'd, I'd argue that recruiting is harder than raising capital, like getting your technical, getting your technical team, getting your technical co-founders, getting your team together is harder than raising your first dollar VC. Because you're asking someone to come join your product for next to next to nothing, with the promise and hope that it'll be worth it'll be worth more multiples more than their time would be worth at another company. So you're asking someone to make a sacrifice for their income to come work on a project with you, or take away their personal time, take away their 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 their, their off time. Mm -hmm. That's a harder sell than raising capital. What do you do? You have any particular anecdotes about? you know, uh, something that either you did or uh, you witnessed where you you learned a lesson about how to recruit better or, you know, you made some type of mistake or, yeah. or, or an oversight. Could you share something like that? Yeah. So I've learned in recruiting, in recruiting, you have to understand what drives the candidate. Some candidates are impact where they want to be involved in an organization. Uh, they don't want to work at the Facebooks or the Twitters or the alphabets. They want to be, be an organization where they have internal impact. Uh, where where their voice is heard more and, and, and they have more product say. Some candidates want external impact. They, they, they want a product to be solving real world issues. You have some people that are just about, hey, I'm going to take the largest check I can get. For, I don't care if it's from, from Amazon, Facebook, I don't care who it is. I'm here for the check. I think, sure. I, I think if, if you can determine in the first one or two interactions with the candidate, what motivates them? Um, ask them where they want to be in a couple of years. What, what kind of challenges do they like? Uh, understand what drives them. Because especially as early employees, it takes a special breed of person to join a company when there are five people sitting around a desk in a living room. Mm -hmm. um, then it's a, that's a very different person than someone who's going to join Google and at 5,000. Like the processes aren't there. You're building it. You, are, you, you have to be able to wear five or six hats. I, like I had engineers answering support tickets and taking sales calls. Like it, it's an all hands on deck. Now joining an early stage startup earlier in your career allows you to accelerate your skill set. You learn a whole lot more at employee number five than you do as an employee number five hundred. So uh, it's it's a unique kind of kind of skill set. And I and I hear a lot of founders like, well, I have a friend who's an engineer at Microsoft. Okay, cool. Like let's chat with them, but. Those kinds of those kinds of people usually are making career choices to to be at a big Microsoft. Are yeah. they unhappy and are looking to make a third of what they're making and work twice as hard? Cool. If so, that's great. Otherwise, let's look for scrappier. Let's look for the non traditional uh, non traditional employees. Let's look for people that were er that. Let's look for companies that have raised their Series B 
and let's find some of those early employees that may have been there early and love the early chapter, but don't like the, don't like the growth stage. Mm-hmm. Like when you're when you're recruiting for a startup, you can't follow normal recruiting uh, methodologies of of inboxing 500 people on LinkedIn. It, it's entirely network. Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, and that's great perspective. And then and then on the flip side of that, you know, recruiting obviously is hard. Uh, how do you how do you let someone go? Like what, what, any, any advice about do's and don'ts on that? Honest and communicate. If, if someone, I'm the kind of person where I'm going to try to make it work. Um, because if, if I hire someone and it doesn't work, it's on me as the person that hired them. Um, just as much, like, like if I hired him and Hey, he, it's not, he's not working or, or, that was, or she's not working with a well in an organization, like, okay, what did I miss as their recruiting person? Like, what did I miss in, in hiring someone? And when I see, when you see concerns, I see, I see a lot of companies that, Hey, they don't, they may not like this engineer. They may not like this person. They don't communicate. Hey, why can't we do this and be open? Like the worst thing you can do is, Hey, everything's going great. And then Friday at four 30, Hey, this isn't working. Today's your last day. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. Like over communicate. There are some concerns. There may be some other stuff going on. You're, you're early. Everyone's juggling 40 different things. Are there financial stress? Is there, is it a personality mismatch? Understand and be an advocate for your employees that, Hey, like maybe there's something going on and uh, uh, at home and it's affecting work. Like, how can you help? Like, like those are the kind of things that, that if you're early employees, they made the risk, they took the risk to join you. If so, I, I that's why I view like the first 10 employees, um, uh, are, are, are a little bit different than employee number 600 because mm-hmm. they took the risk on you as the founder. Yeah. Like if they're going through something or, or, or there's some issue, you owe it to them to over communicate those issues because they took that risk. No, and, and that's a great point. The, the idea of risk is, is a very funny notion, right? Most people, when they hear the word risk, it's always associated with some type of anxiety or something very negative or, or, or even nefarious at times. But I think entrepreneurs are a very interesting bunch of people where they, they don't look at risk as, okay, I'm trying to avoid it. It's almost like, okay, how do I handle it? Which is, which is a a different mindset. And I wish, I wish more people just in general life had that mindset of like, there's risk. I mean, there's risk. You, if you go out of your house, there's risk of you, you being in the house and and having a problem. So I, I think what people think of as risk is mainly some type of innate fear that they're not able to reconcile. Um, have you have you seen have you seen that in as as a founder goes from you know just starting the company let's say in your case you know to growing it out and whatnot have you noticed that your understanding of how risk and failure and uh, and strategy how, how do those interrelate with each other as you're growing in your role? I think more the more experienced the founder, the more willing they are to take a risk. Um, but we take take more risk in more calculated ways. Like for example, when you when, when we first launch a product, hey, it's gonna be perfect. Like once you're down, hey, like let's get 20% of it looking fantastic. Let's only ship that 20% and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, like you take a whole lot more calculated risks the, the, the longer you've been there because there there is the the innate fear of you don't know what's gonna happen. But after after you you've been doing this for a while, you, you kind of under like you have a better understanding of where your failure points are, and and understand that not everything has to be one hundred percent perfect one hundred percent of the time. Like analysis paralysis, 
uh, and the meeting to have the meeting to prep for the meeting for the meeting don't <laughs> make any sense. Like so many times, like, like you'll see a founder, Hey, this is a great product. Why have you launched it? Well, it's not perfect. Cause it's never going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Like that's where you have to take that risk and, and put yourself out there. That is being a founder is putting your name on something and either watching it take off on product hunt or watching it get smacked on product hunt. Um, that's part of the journey. And if, if you can't do that, if you can't put your name on something and watch it get ripped up online, maybe this isn't, and it's not nothing against that individual, being employee number one at a company is a unique challenge. Maybe you're a better employee number six. Maybe mm-hmm. you're a better chief of staff at a company than you are a founder. That's nothing against you. It just takes that person to not really care what anyone else thinks if it fails. Um, and honestly, not care what anyone thinks if it takes off because you have to insulate yourself. So on, on that notion of not caring or, you know, quote unquote, not caring, where do you think the line is between a founder who doesn't care uh, in, in a, in a, in a sense that it doesn't hold him or her back from pursuing that, that dream or that mission versus not caring to the point where it's pathologic? Correct. The, the, when, when a, when a company fails, the founder didn't fail the company failed. Just because your product didn't take off doesn't mean that you're a bad founder or a bad engineer. Sometimes there are things outside, wrong product, just bad deck of cards. Like 90% of early stage companies fail. Like this is hard. It's not, and it doesn't mean that you can't start something up again in six months. Like the best investors are the ones that if something fails, they're the ones that are there. Hey, take six months, decompress and call me when you want to go raise because I'm your first check-in. Like those are the, those are the MVPs. Like those are the people that even if they do fail, like your investors and your board should be the ones supporting you along, along the way that when I say you don't care, if something takes off, you can't let it drive your ego. Like, otherwise you're going to, it's a roller coaster. Being a founder is a roller coaster. It's the highest of the highs and lowest of the lows. And you have to be able to maintain some sort of level or you're going to drive yourself crazy. What advice do you have for for that uh you know that well-being for a founder because you can easily manage when you're doing a little bit of everything Mm -hmm. and you're constantly you know you're you're running on fumes a lot and whatnot i mean you know burnout is a big issue depression um, you know anxiety i mean you know there's a lot of mental health components in in any venture that you do in life but particularly something that in a way it's, it's really unstructured, right? There's not really that much of a playbook when you start a company, you're, 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 you're really figuring it out as you go. I mean, yes, there's a lot of resources out nowadays for people, you know, advice and this and that, but at the end of the day, you know, you're in that pilot seat, so to speak, and, yep. and you're, you're building that plane as it flies, sort of, you know, um, what do you, what do you think about uh, any resources or, or how do you, how did you handle the stress of being a, a founder? Not well, uh, at the beginning, like even towards the end, like, it, it is a, it is an incredibly stressful position. Mm-hmm. Um, I crashed and burned a few times. Um, and I had an awesome team around me that kind of helped, help get stuff back in order, but just the overall drive of, I'm not going to stop working until this is done or that done or, 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 or that's done is self-destructive. Um, and it takes, uh, like for me, I learned that I had, I had to take an hour to an hour and a half a day and go exercise. Um, I had to have that, that 
I had to unplug. Um, I, I picked up a yoga practice because it's quiet and it's, it is the exact opposite uh, from building a company because they, a yoga pose is, is still in like, you can't move. You're not talking. Like you're not, you're doing everything that you're not that, like the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, like those kinds of things. You have to find something that, that challenges you physically, not just mentally. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, it, you need to find that outlet because if you don't find the outlet, you're going to end up burned up, fried, your company's going to suffer, your, your team's going to suffer. Um, and that's where the, like, that's where it's the hardest for a founder. When, when you start something, it's you. When you grow something, it's its own entity. And then you have to start looking at what's the best interest of the company, uh, not just you, because the founder is not the company. Um, and uh, that's a hard challenge for, for, for a lot of early stage founders until either until they realize they catch themselves starting to get burned out or they put their blinders on uh pour more coffee and keep going until they crash mm -hmm. and uh when they crash uh it's not great um it's never pretty and uh from like an advisor I, i've sat on some boards like that's what i focus on like okay i've been in the founder's shoes i i can see those signs of burnout i can see the the sloppiness in an email or a presentation that wasn't there three or four weeks ago. Like those are things where, where if you are an investor, you are on the board, like in my opinion, that's just as important as product success is keeping the key, the, the core team happy, mm -hmm. comfortable and healthy. So that's why I look for things like, Hey, look, it's maybe it's time for you to unplug for, for, for the holidays, turn your email off, delegate to a COO, delegate to someone and take three or four days off decompress. Um, because a lot of times the founder will put their blinders on and I'm fine. I must keep going. Like the hustle, hustle culture, in my opinion, is toxic because mm -hmm. it, it, it builds upon poor ideologies of working 19 hours a day. It's just not healthy. Yeah. It's, it's not healthy at all. And, and, I, and I feel like this is a problem even beyond, beyond, you know, startup founders. I mean, I see this in yeah. you know, my industry in healthcare and, you know, we see physicians and other providers, nurses, you know, uh, you know, respiratory therapists, I mean, a, a slew of professionals who, you know, are just, they, they either get work to the bone or working themselves to the bone, so to speak. And, the, you know, the, the rates of burnout are very high and, you know, they have consequences, like you said, it's not just a consequence on yourself, but it affects your work. And especially when you're, you're doing stuff like designing a product, you know, affecting someone's healthcare or, you know, even just driving a truck. I mean, yep. all these activities, they have downstream effects. Yeah, and it, 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 like there, there's a there's a tool that I that every that before I uh, I write write in a check for something before I join a board, like I tell a founder, it, like go buy a Whoop, um, it's a wearable, um, go buy that Whoop, um, it's thirty bucks a month, go buy it, uh, it will fundamentally change how you operate. It uh, athletes use it to perform in games, um it tracks your, it's awesome at tracking sleep, recovery. Uh, you drink too much, you're gonna, your recovery, it, it shows you in a really easy to use way, what habits are damaging your, your, your recovery, your sleep, those kind of things help and helps you almost biohack your way to a, uh, be more productive. Like those are the kind of technologies that, that I'm fascinated in these days about finding ways, unlock human potential. And I think from a founder standpoint, like those are the kind of things that if you can see it on your phone, it kicks you a message, how much sleep you need tonight. It, it helps you become a, a better person.
that's great. That's great too. I'll have to check it out too. I heard about it, but I didn't really know much about it. Yeah, it's it, it's it's an awesome. It's like the only. Uh, I think they're the official wearable of the NBA, the NFL, the PGA Tour. Uh, it's fantastic because it it, it um, tracks your your sleep stuff, um, your heart heart rate uh, variability. Um, like it's a, it's a really a lot of really cool data that comes out of it. Okay, good. I'll check it out. Um, so the other part of the equation always with companies is um, how do you deal with investors, right? It's a it's different than obviously recruiting your know, employees or whatnot. What what's your experience been? in you know, approaching investors either to become angels in your company or angel investor versus you know VC and what any words of caution or advice about you know the fact that not all money is the same meaning depending on who you're sort of associating with it, it, it may cost you more or less in many other ways yep so um kind of okay. lots to unpack there so kind of originally approaching investors and like in the angel phase look for people that add value outside of a check. Um, those are going to be your most impactful investors. Um, they're going to take a risk on you early. Um, and those are the people that like, as you go, you're going to have to fight for their pro rata. Like those are the people that like, if you're someone's the first check in, you better be still be fighting for them. Uh, as long as they want to stay in, as long as they want to exercise their pro rata, you better be telling, uh, you like, they depend on you to advocate for them mm -hmm. as, as you go. So like find uh, industry people, find people, take, uh, have them pull, uh, help pull together an angel syndicate. If they, if it's a $5,000 check, doesn't hit your, doesn't song your table, but find those small dollar strategic investors uh, that can add more than just money. Like everyone wants to go raise $5 million from Sequoia yet you could do the exact, a lot of times you can, you can still accomplish a ton with $500,000 from 10 small strategics that have all been operators and get more value. It's a different kind of check at a seed stage from angels than is gonna be a seed stage from a firm. The seed stage from angels are typically gonna be more involved and be able to be able to open more doors. The firm, they're looking for either, hey, are you gonna get, do we wanna lead this A when only like 38% of, of firms will follow on? Um, or do, uh, or is there a large enough markup where we can kick it off to a, a bigger firm and start shopping some secondary. So like the one question that, that I tell founders to ask um, that very few people do is drill down on the fund that they, so in a firm, there are multiple funds, drill down on the fund uh, that they're investing out of. Um, and what what is the dynamic in that fund? How long is the life cycle? Um, uh, where are they at? If it's a 10 year fund, are they year four? So you know that they're going to be pushing for an exit or pushing for them to get out in the next three or four years. Mm -hmm. Like it, th those dynamics are really important to, to find out in the early stage. And, and more importantly, go ask them for founders that they've invested in that have failed and have honest conversations with them. That will tell you more than a founder they invested in that, that had a win because a founder that invested in them had a win. Great. I'm retired. I made a lot of money. They were helpful. Great. I want to know, is the partner that's going to be on my board? How? What was his attitude to a company that struggled, and what was what was his attitude to a company that failed? That's going to be more important, in my opinion, than than someone who won. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's really good advice. You're you're interviewing them in that sense. Like it's mm -hmm. it's not it's not just like hey, first check that comes along. Oh, think I would you know, don't don't be desperate. Uh, it seems like yeah. you know. And 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 a lot of times the largest the largest check is not necessarily the right check. 
you may have term sheets, like, like every founder is focused on, I want the highest valuation. Well, a lot of times you're kind of your smaller nichier firms that will give you more help and more expertise can't pay the higher valuation, but will be better partners. So either get them in, in your round, find a way to get them in a round or go with a group that will be your best long-term partner. This is a marriage. Like this isn't just like these people that are going to be on your board. These are people that, that you're going to interact with on hopefully you're sending monthly updates or at minimum quarterly. Um, these are people that should be a call when you need help call when things aren't going great, need some advice, like interview them. Like everyone's all, all the founders used to getting big diligence lists, send them a diligence list, send them. I want to know X, Y, and Z before I sign this term sheet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, some, that's great advice. I think, you know, um, just switch gears a little bit, you know, so we, we, we talked a lot about the advice for founders and, uh, and, and, and how to deal with investors and the mindset. Um, why don't we turn to your company itself? Um, yeah. How did you, you know, tell us about the company? how did you come up with the idea? You know, and what was the problem you're solving and, you know, what challenges did you have as you were, you know, sort of launching and scaling it? Yeah. So the company's called your loop. Um, we helped bring cost-based pricing to senior living communities, help communities run more efficiently. Uh, while increasing staff, uh, help, help communities run more efficiently while increasing the quality of care that residents uh, received uh, with the eventual goal of reducing loneliness inside communities. Uh, uh, depression is one of the largest issues in most assisted living or acute care. Um, most people that go into kind of heavy assisted uh, skilled nursing, like these people that are having their, their almost their freedom taken away, they have to move in, they have to have care. Mm -hmm. uh, depression is, it is, is rampant in these communities. So there was a long-term goal of, of kind of reducing that uh, via a social, via kind of like a quasi social graph in, 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 uh, in these communities where uh, match people up based on likes, interests. Uh, it was really cool. Um, it was a really challenging product. Uh, getting uh, grandma in the middle of rural Iowa to use an iPad for the first time was a, was a tremendous challenge. Um, the industry also pivoted while we were building. Um, there was a, there was kind of a, a assumption that the new baby boomer generation would be just as impactful uh, in regards to, res to occupancy rates and want to move into communities in the mid uh, 20 teens, uh, but they didn't. So there was overbuilding. Uh, it forced developers to kind of, to to pivot and, and focus more on impactful uh, products and in increasing profit margins. It was a really unique experience. Um, you learn a lot uh, building for this demographic. You learn a lot. Uh, like a whole lot of stories and but more importantly you see how little focus there is on aging tech and how to make older adults lives easier as they age um it's shocking that there's nothing there uh your loop was able to solve a good chunk a good chunk of their problems in communities uh we were acquired by an amazing group called sincere uh that they're a hardware company and uh sincere is now going to blend some hardware some software together and i think has what the industry has been looking for for a really long time. So, so walk me to, through the experience where if you are someone who lives in mm -hmm. a senior facility or, or assisted living facility, you hand, you hand them the iPad. Yep. So what, what happens? Like what, what, how are you, how are you fighting against their depression or their loneliness? So we built a platform that allowed, uh, it was a B2B, it was B2B to C. So um, we sold into senior living communities. Um, we built service request management system. So if, if grandma is in a, a community in middle of Iowa, 
um, her granddaughter could talk to her and order her room service. We're, we're looking at more campus uh, communities. Mm -hmm. So uh, connecting those family members uh, into their loved one's care uh, while optimizing the delivery of that care. So it was a really unique product. Um, we, uh, we built some really cool kind of like service tracking systems inside, uh, trying to dance around NDAs. Uh, so, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no, it, it was a really cool platform. Our goal to reduce loneliness was, was creating kind of in communities and external community social groups that brought those older residents into uh, kind of almost introduce them to new friends. Think of a, a senior living community as middle school. Like there are cliques. There are like the, there, there's the, like every click you see in middle school, you see in a senior living community. Oh my God. So how, so how can so we- So weird to think about that. It really is. You got the popular kids, like, like you, you've got, like, it is weird. So <laughs> uh, uh, how, how can we ease that transition um, in going from living on your own now to living with 50 roommates that you see every day? How can we, how can we bridge that gap? So, so before we were acquired, we were working on some really cool um, tools to kind of do some personality matching and things of that nature, but it was a it was an awesome project. Interesting. So, how did you, so do you have any previous background or experience in this industry that led you to develop this product, or were you a complete outsider and you identified this need somehow? Complete outsider. We heard from a bunch of our friends. Um, one of my co-founders, uh, Brendan, was running through an issue with some loved with some loved ones there. I think everyone ha has had a really bad experience um, in senior with senior living. It was kind of one of those things where, or I was going through it with some some of my family. Brendan was going through it with his. Larry's going through it with his. Like a lot of like the early people were, were, were had that issue, so it just I don't say it kind of fell in our lap, but it kind of fell in our lap. Mm. Okay. And, 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 you know, so from a, I guess, customer discovery and sort of market, you know, evaluation standpoint, how did you go about understanding, okay, where are the pain points and, and then, you know, figure out how to solve them? Because again, being an outsider to that industry, you know, it, it's one thing having, let's say grandma and you, you see that, okay, she's not doing well, she's lonely and depressed and you as a family member maybe can't do more, but then it's another thing coming up with like this type of solution that you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but we had we had some friends uh, in senior living at the time uh, that we convinced to kind of come onto our cap table. Um, uh, some uh, some people from the finance space, some people from the operation space. We it literally became pounding networks. All right, we've identified senior living as wide open space. We've identified we we did some competitive research and realized no one is solving the, com the communication efficiency problem. All right, now we need to get into the industry. How who can we call? Who can we find our network? Our my co-founder Larry did a fantastic job at kind of pounding the doors, getting meetings, and almost did kind of traditional PM work of all right, tell me about your problems. Tell me what works. Tell me what doesn't work. Why doesn't this work? And we were we had the door slammed in our face a ton. Like, hey, mm -hmm. this like like the like the model, it's too expensive. Like this doesn't work. Hey, our problems are too big. Uh, you guys can't solve them. If if big publicly traded company that's our vendor can't solve them you can't either so it took a long time uh, to find to find awesome partners and we did out in texas uh, that, that allowed us access to their their uh, their communities and um we were able to spend a lot of time working with them and crafting solutions and iterating and until we found something that worked no that's excellent and i think that something you said uh, we hear a lot in in the healthcare field which i i, I don't agree with is the whole thing like if you know, if this big 
big company couldn't solve the problem. How are you going to solve it? And, and honestly, it's, it, it usually is the smaller companies that actually know how to solve the problems. The big one is just so steeped into bureaucracy and red tape that they, they just, they don't innovate. Now it's just a, it's a, it's, it's its own little thing, you know, exactly. it's a big thing now. And, and I find like that type of mentality is way more per pervasive in many industries actually. And, yep. and, I, and I wish it wasn't that way. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I agree that there, there are so often companies that, Hey, like just like, okay, big company can't solve it. Maybe because you're, you're not as important to big company. Big company has 10 big companies that are customers. Those smaller companies, while they may be small, they're a lot more nimble. And a lot of times can deliver you a much better solution. Um, now it, it takes some diligence from uh, to find those, but um, I think I think those are the people that are more invested in your problems. Like SAP is not going to be super invested in, in your senior living community problem. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, and and so your solution, uh, your product, was it U.S. based or did you expand into international markets? So we built it to expand into international markets, but we're acquired before we were able to. Okay. And as far as the age, aging tech and elder tech uh, sort of market space, talk, talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Like as you were doing your research to find out, okay, how big the market is, you know, what are the different needs other, other than solving depression or loneliness as, yeah. as, as that's a huge thing, obviously. What other opportunities are there so that other people listening and that may be interested in this space be like, okay, here's other things we should look at to possibly solve. Yeah, so aging tech is really wide. Um, you have uh, you have the financial tools that can be built uh, to help people plan for for like everyone thinks, oh, planning for retirement, great, cool. I'm gonna travel the world, I'm gonna play golf, and mm -hmm. be great. Um, but that's the first part of retirement. Then there's the care side. Um, aging in place, I think, is where more people are going. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's that's where there's a ton of room. The kind of large kind of facility-based uh, care, I think, is becoming more obsolete with this, this, with this new generation of senior living. Uh, you're seeing a much higher age where they first move in. It used to be someone is 68, they're moving to independent living. They have like a campus. More people are wanting to stay in their place. More people financially uh, never recovered from the 2008 uh, 2009 stuff so they have to they're, they're still they're working later they're like we're seeing that shift and uh, so I think kind of tools that augment someone's existing uh, residence to allow them to live uh, longer in in their residence without moving to a, a skilled nursing I think are really interesting places um, ways to deliver kind of aging medical products uh, incontinence care uh, things uh, things like that uh, more discreetly and more customized fashion um, is, is a really interesting place. Um, kind of those, those low touch medical services um, that uh, uh, remote monitoring at home, fall detection at home, those small services that build upon like what Life Alert's done. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot more that can be expanded there. Uh, so I think uh, there's a company called Smart Beings that's building some really interesting um, uh, products for kind of the in-home care space right now. Uh, but yeah, I, I think kind of that aging in place is, is something that, that fascinates me. How, how can we allow how can we allow older adults to age in place without moving them with moving their entire social and financial life? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 as someone who moved last year from Atlanta to the Philadelphia area, 
I mean, it's hard enough when you're relatively healthy and younger with a family to move, let alone somewhere maybe, you you know, you lived for a long, long part of your life with with your spouse or loved one and whatnot. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, I'm going to go live with a bunch of strangers who basically at some real estate facility that, you know, with, you know, orderlies or, or aides that, I mean, they're just, they're there, just, you know, they're working. It's, it's not, a, it's not a family atmosphere necessarily. And you're, yep. you're really displaced. So I could do- totally see why, um, uh, what is it? You know, depression and loneliness are, are very high. Um, what regulatory issue did you guys have to deal with that others should know about? Uh, b- because you're now straddling into the, you know, healthcare medical space as well. Yeah. So, so HIPAA is an interesting in aging tech and senior living importantly, HIPAA is really interesting. Um, uh, like you're not supposed, you're not allowed to do use simple SMS, SMS text messages yet. I'd say 70% of senior living communities still rely on that. Mm-hmm. Um, HIPAA is, HIPAA is challenging uh, to get around, especially kind of solving the loneliness issue because you're, you're now, you have to double opt in, you, like even, even ordering in ordering food in a medical environment. Um, you're in a medical environment and you display a resident's name on a ticket um, in a kitchen that is close to the, like, like the, 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 it is it is really, really tricky um, to tiptoe around. Either a lot of communities care super passionately, which I think they should. Unfortunately, a lot of communities don't, I would say, disregard uh, HIPAA a lot. So um, HIPAA is a really interesting one. Um, we didn't have to touch a ton of regulatory. We were because uh, we didn't provide direct care, but anything that uh, anything that touches uh, that protected health information in a clinical environment uh, is 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 challenging, especially to build in. Um, I think we're we're starting to see some rumblings. I think the health industry as a whole needs their plaid. Well, how fintech has plaid, um, health tech needs plaid. They need their version. They need their uh, plaid allows every financial institution to communicate with each other via uh, awesome API platform, visas acquiring them. We'll see where that goes. Um, but health tech needs their plaid where, where Apple's the closest to it right now. Um, mm-hmm. But when you build aging tech, when you build anything health tech, dealing with that health record is the most challenging aspect in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, and HIPAA is also a very antiquated law because it was never written, in, written with any consideration for uh, the digital world, really. It was... <laughs> They use best practices. Like you can argue best practice. Uh, yeah, yeah. And half the time it's cheaper to pay them their $500,000 fine than it is to get a law firm on retainer that will argue what is best practice for startups. And I think that's what scares away a ton of health innovation and in the early stage because you need so much money a lot of times to compete and just mm-hmm. build compli- internal compliance, uh, yeah. which is why I think we need our version of Plaid. What, what do you think is keeping that? What is not letting that happen? Is it more of a lot of resistance in the, so the healthcare, you know, like industry, or is it just ignorance that about like monopolistic, a monopolistic tendencies by the, a couple large competitors, mm-hmm. a couple large vendors that own the majority of us uh, health records. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, we we in healthcare have definitely been affected by that on many many different fronts. Oh, yeah. by, by these vendors. Like 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 a great example. I I uh, I got a COVID test a few weeks ago, um, uh, and just trying to get my record like 
they don't talk to each other. So it was from another clinic. So I have a completely separate medical record, not tied to my primary one that floats out there. Like think, like think all the way through, like there is so much room for a plaid where like you don't have, I'm sure most people don't have their, their medical records and their appointment notes from when they were six or seven or eight, like their, their pediatric records aren't super compiled because yeah. you jumped from doctor, you moved, you had, they were all paper. Like imagine, imagine capturing someone's health information from when they were born to when they're 28 years old, you can see and have it all on one platform or have the ability where that patient can take it anywhere or an integrated, imagine if you could integrate your, your wearable into a health record that your primary could see. Like those lifestyle, like those lifestyle things that if, if it could be added to your medical record, insurance companies and large other kind of monopolistic tendencies of, of large medical record providers, keep that from happening so they mm -hmm. can continue to charge what they do to all these different providers. Yeah. Someone like a plaid needs to come in and simply say, here's what we're doing um, and get buy-in, I think, from the wearable companies to build a standard. I think Apple is the closest right now with, with Apple Health. But if, if, if someone can build that, that will unlock a ton of innovation if founders like me and others don't have to worry about the medical record side of things. There's a standard that we could build to or something that we could integrate in, into out of the box would save so much time, money, and effort. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think we need a we need a better standard. And I think that the problem in healthcare with all of this uh, these silos has been that the, the idea of having you know like an integrated health record that travels with the person mm -hmm. it, it's been around for a long time actually. The, the problem has been uh, the patients don't want to pay for it. Yep. Most providers don't want to pay for it. Basically, the, the idea is great, but it's one of those things like okay, I, I want I want the solution, but I don't want to pay for it. So exactly. it's like, it's like, well, at some point, someone's got to pay for this. Exactly. <laughs> and the problem has always been, uh, everybody keeps passing the buck, say, okay, you know what, I'm not going to insure insurance will pay insurance is like, no, 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 we're not going to pay the government will pay. And then the government's like, no, no, we're not going to pay. So this idea of the medical record, I mean, I remember Google Health, when it first sort of arose, like almost a decade, maybe a decade and a half ago, they tried this. And, yep. and, and even they couldn't succeed, like with their exactly. resources. I just said to myself, I'm like, my God, this seems like such a ridiculous system, uh, just like you said, but it, it's, I don't know, I, it, I'm not really sure how to get the plan of healthcare going, because at the end of the day, who exactly is going to pay for it? Like in fintech, you have this vested interest because of the fact that it's, you know, the nature of the industry is different and you're dealing with money in a way that no other industry deals with, right? But in healthcare, it's, it's such a screwed up system, honestly, in, in the US yeah. at least that uh, you can't find who's going to pay the B to B to C solution. You can't find that middle B. And, and I'd love for someone to show me where that I think, is. I think given the, given the rise in kind of health wearable platforms, kind of like the hymns and hers, the Romans that are kind of the, the almas that are, that are unbundling that primary care physician, they're all having this exact same problem where mm -hmm. like, say, say you go and uh, are a, a a patient at Roman, um, you don't have like that, that record stays at Roman. Roman has to maintain that. Same thing at hims and hers. They have to maintain those. So I think there is an opportunity for someone to come in and build a health record system um, that all these new healthcare companies are spinning up can utilize, but is owned by a single user account where 
hey, you create an account at Roman, we'll integrate your Roman account to this and let the consumer, like not every consumer is gonna, gonna opt in, but if they can opt in and share all of their information across, there's a, there's a large majority that would pay a couple bucks a month to have access to their records anytime they want. Okay, so you think it's the wearables market where this, this movement could potentially start? I think, I think the wearables and the unbundling of the primary care physician, the, like the, these, these niche VC funded clinics um, that are like, if you're in California, it used to be, you had to go to a psych, a, uh, go see a psych for um, uh, Adderall. Well, with like, you can now do a half hour visit on, on an iPhone and get a prescription for Adderall and be sent to you in 20, in 24 hours. Like, that used to not be possible mm-hmm. six months ago, eight eight months ago. Not to ma- not not to mention five years ago. No one would have thought you could order Adderall after after a half hour visit uh, with a doctor for two hundred dollars, and you now have a prescription for Adderall that your insurance will cover. Like mm-hmm. that's crazy. Um, yeah. Like it's awesome. Like it's it's unbundling. It's removing those those barriers, especially for the mental health space. But that's where I think the opportunity lies in in building enough enough momentum around kind of the unbundling of the primary and then forcing getting enough of a critical user mass where it starts to annoy other people mm-hmm. where i think if, if you went and you open source your standards you allow people to integrate you made it super simple um i think there's a lot of room there yeah and and now now with you know this uh, we're, we're still in a covid world right we can't even say we're post-covid how, how do you see the nature of founding a company, you know, like, like the way you did, um, changing uh, with the fact that, you know, we obviously still have a lot of restrictions in place. We vaccine still hasn't been distributed the way we would like it to be. And so, you know, there's still going to be a, a, a time period where uh, things are not going to be at the new normal, so to speak. We're still in yep. this weird, you know, funky twilight zone uh, sort of phase. Um, what's changed about the way you work, how you see, you know, people in the Valley working, uh, there's definitely, you know, there's like this diaspora now from Silicon Valley, you know, moving to like Austin and I guess Miami is the new thing now and, <laughs> and all this. Um, where do you see this going? You know? So I think it's easier to build something today than it was a year and a half ago. Because um, I think what this has, what, what this has forced technology to do is allow people to work remote and make remote work more socially acceptable. Like, I don't think we're, we're going to stay ever in this kind of everyone can work remote. I think we're going to start seeing this hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, what it does is it allows, uh, it forces U.S. employees to compete on an international level, level against engineers around the world. Um, and like you can have fully distributed teams. You can work from anywhere. So I think what it does is it opens up the talent pool and more. And from a founder standpoint, it lowers, um, I'd say the cost of admission, but it lowers the the, the cost of admission to a play on, play on a global level. Um, you can now have engineers working embedded in your organization in Bangalore. You can now have engineers working in Singapore. You can have engineers working in Japan. You can have engineers working in Germany. I have an awesome friend who set up shop in Croatia. Like they are now embedded in teams mm-hmm. and it's, it's a lower cost for a lot of startups to be able to build a better, a, a bigger team, compete faster, build faster. Um, I think the flip side is it uh, from a, a someone who spent a lot of time out in San Francisco, it's going to force cities to really clean up their their act. Like San Francisco is in rough shape. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, anyone, anyone says San Francisco's in rough shape. Um, and there's a reason why everyone's, I don't say fleeing, but I, I was out there a couple weeks ago, like in chatting with friends, hey, like, are you coming back to the, to the Bay? I, like I heard overwhelmingly from a lot of founder friends and early, uh, and a lot of early kind of big tech people, no one, like they're not coming back. Like, yeah, like there's still an over-concentration of, of talent and capital in S- Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing is a COVID was a catalyst that, that kind of jettisoned a lot of people out of the Valley. Like, California is not a super friendly business state. Yeah. Uh, like San Francisco, like San Francisco became popular because no one could afford living closer to the valley. So everyone spread up. Now people are spreading the other way down San Jose up to Pleasanton and Dublin. Like that's growing. Um, it's super expensive. You pay an insane amount of tax. Everything is more expensive. Like the, the pros always outweighed the cons like yes there's there's overwhelming level of talent yes it's much easier to raise but after you raise there like you don't need to be there anymore and it's it's changing how companies and changing company strategies like like i've had friends who've who've led five six ten million dollar rounds i've never met the founder in person it's been on zoom (laughs) you you told them two years ago that you'd write ten million dollar check and not meet not shake that person's hand they'll have laughed you out of their office (laughs) yeah yeah, so, it's it's an odd thing, right, to hear that. Yeah, and and, and like I, I have another friend who's building a company. He's he's raised a good chunk of money. He's like I haven't met two thirds of my staff, never met him. Like I see him on a Zoom. We like I see him three or four times a day, but I've never met him. And it's <laughs> it, it's so so my point is all right. Look, you you've never met that person. Um, why? What's the difference between them being in Italy? versus them being uh, in Palo Alto. There's mm-hmm. no difference. If yeah. they're on Zoom, who cares? So uh, I, think, I think it's easier uh, to build internet, build companies bigger, faster, for cheaper. I think it, it'll help spark some innovation. My concern is what happens when we start going back to normal. Because um, mm-hmm. I think companies are going to start to realize that people aren't going to want to work at home every day, but how do they adapt their culture to allow for a, a flexible workforce? Yeah. And, and I think that's a overall better way to go where someone has the option to say, okay, a couple of days a week, I'm going to, I'm going to go to this other location or somewhere. Yeah. If, if nothing, just, just so they don't go crazy in the house. Oh yeah. You know? uh, because everybody's going stir crazy at this point and, and people are sort of <laughs> displaying their frustrations in many different ways. And oh, yeah. I, I feel like, as much as you know, the the you know companies may want to get rid of their very expensive commercial real estate. I, I feel like you're going to need some of these maybe co-working spaces or something. But then the other question is that if you're so decentralized and so remote, you know, as far as a company goes, where you have people in multiple different actual time zones or whatnot, I mean, what what option do you give them to say, okay, you know what, we'll give you a stipend if you want to go to this WeWork space or this other thing yep. that's in your area okay, go for it, you know, if it helps you, you know, be productive and you feel better. I, like, I mean, I, I would think that would be some type of an amicable solution to that. Yeah, no, I, 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 I've been chatting with, with a lot of people in recruiting. I think, I think what, what, what I've heard a lot uh, is we're going to build kind of regions. Like we're going to set up shop in Austin. Mm-hmm. We're going to rent a 20 person office in Austin. We're going to rent a 20 person office or a room 
in Chicago. Like we're going to build regions. So we're not going to say you have to be in here. We're going to say, hey, if you want, like, like I know friends who live in Las, Las Vegas that used to fly into San Francisco and spend Tuesday, Wednesday in San Francisco and fly back and live in Las Vegas. Like, I think you're going to start to see a lot more of these kind of region specific, yeah. hey, we're hiring within a three hour drive of Chicago. So you yeah. live any more than three hours of Chicago because twice a month, we're going to get together in person. So that means you've got to drive to Chicago twice a month, um, stay overnight, uh, two, two nights a month in Chicago for kind of quasi regional all hand planning sure. stuff. Yeah. Like, I think that's what we're going to see more of than you're going to be in person I just don't see how large companies that can get like they spend a ton of money pivoting at pivoting everyone to fully remote and then trying to get everyone to change on a dime, mm-hmm. change their habits for I think will be almost 18 months going fully back. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna turn the clock back 18 months. Like I, I just don't see it happening. No, it, it, and I don't think it can happen because now now the proof is in the pudding where yep. before people were like, no, you have to be, you know, in Silicon Valley, you have to be in New York, you have to be in uh, whatever, all these, you know, very high cost of living areas, right? And then all of a sudden people are like, well, guess what? For the last 18 months, I've been sitting in uh, Wyoming or I've been, yep. you know, I've been in, in, you know, in France or wherever people ended up going where they were able to get an internet connection and they're able to do an internet, you know, based business. And, and they said to themselves, like, so if we were able to conduct business this way, what is the justification for me to now move back to San Francisco or to exactly. New York? And, and I think what's going to happen is, is that the savvier companies will say, you know what, we don't want you to do that. In fact, if you're unhappy at your present job, we'll make you a better deal where you don't have to. And, you know, I, I have a few friends that have done this where they, they moved in, like a friend who settled in North Carolina in the Research Triangle area. And he, he loves it. His family loves it. He's, he, he still can't get past how much house he has. Like he's yeah. just like, and he moved from, you know, from, from San Francisco. And he's just like, he's like, you don't understand. He's like, I just love just walking in my yard. Like, I, because, I, you know, we didn't really have much of this. And, and he's like, he's like, why would I want to go back now? Like I can do everything yeah, I, here. And, my, and I, my, my dollar goes farther. Like, I think you're going to see relocation like you'll you'll see you'll see you'll still see relocation allowances in in executive offer letters, but for destination TBD, like I'll pay you, I'll give you a thirty thousand thirty thousand dollar allowance if you want to leave San Francisco and go someplace else. Yeah, like I, I think you're gonna see that be becoming a really unique recruiting tool for companies. That hey, mm. if you're not happy in New York, part of my offer will will give you a a, a way to leave New York and we'll yeah. pay relocate you want to get out of your lease fine we'll pay we'll pay for that to get you out to get you someplace happier well and from a company standpoint it's cheaper to fly someone out maybe once or twice a month than than to you know have to require and and your pool of talent just increases too when when you can just say hey listen i don't care if you're sitting in italy as long as you're doing the job right and you know you're exactly you're, you're a team player i mean what else do you really need as long as your deliverables are done and the culture of the company is maintained yeah, I, I have a friend who is uh, heading off to Bali. Uh, he got a business visa and he's going to camp out in Bali for Bali for uh, 60 days and work to get a, a permanent visa there. And he's running a company. He's VP of product for a fairly large venture-backed company in San Francisco. It's like, I'm heading off to Bali. I found a place I can rent. I, it's like, I can rent a tree house that overlooks the jungle. For <laughs> lots of That's so cool. 
I'm making 250 a year here in San Francisco. I'm moving my residence to Texas and I am off to, I'm off to Bali. And he's like, I'm, I'll pay no state income tax. I'll, yeah. I'll split between here and, uh, and there in Austin. And I got, I live in the jungle and I pay a dollar for lunch. Like why, why <laughs> yeah. I do my job? Who cares? Yeah. As long as you do your job. And, and what it makes me wonder also is going back to something you said earlier in the talk where you, you said that, you know, one, one of the things that made Silicon Valley unique is because of that concentration of talent and the network effects that, that bring a lot, bring that. So now with like this decentralization, you know, and it's not just Silicon Valley. I mean, it's New York, it's all these expensive areas to live in, you know, London, even, you know, whatever. How, what do you think happens to those network effects? Like, so, do they get diluted? So I think the Valley is strong enough that, that, 10, 15, 10, 15% could leave. I don't think anyone's going to really notice. Mm. Um, there's an overwhelmingly, there's an overwhelming level of talent um, there where like, okay, a billion dollar VC firm leaves. There are still like 50 more on Sand Hill Road. Like, mm-hmm. are you really going to notice? Yeah. I think, I think there's so much entrenchment there that uh, I think it's going to be hard for it to really be like if a billion dollar VC firm left San Francisco and moved to Miami, you are now a big fish in a very small pond. Mm, and yeah. I think that's what you're going to see more of. Like I'm long cities like New York and Chicago. Um, Cause I think people, I think there's still a large chunk of people that love living in that urban environment are willing to pay for living that living in that urban environment, but don't want to live in San Francisco that don't yeah. want to live elsewhere. So I think, like I think I'm long New York. I'm long, really long Chicago. Um, Illinois has its own issues, mm-hmm. but I think there's still there's there's still going to be that need for large urban centers uh, for tech. Uh, like Uber was built for, because it was a carless San Francisco was more of a carless environment. That's what that's what it thrived in. The the my concern is we're seeing kind of this this people that leave and set up shop in middle of Wyoming, middle of, of Iowa kind of thing. My concern is those, those people will, will lose touch with what works in urban environments. Mm-hmm. We're, seeing a more, we're seeing an urbanization around the world mm-hmm. that are we going to start depending on other countries and in other, other, um, uh, other places um, when we could, we could build them here. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Well, I mean, you know, there, there's always the, the constant, I don't want to use the word threat, but there's, you, you always got to watch your shoulder with other countries like India and China, where the, the level of talent, especially, you know, STEM and engineering talent is so high. And yep. they have nationally aligned initiatives to yep. make sure that all the constant, you know, pumping of innovation and capital and is, I mean, it honestly happens at a scale that it may not even happen here at this point, yep. especially in China. And, and I feel oh, like, know, I, I, like I, I, I'm a firm believer in, in this kind of decentralization with COVID. It's going to force states, like Miami's popular because the Miami governor, the Miami mayor was not yeah. openly hostile. Like it, it's oh, yeah. not a little Like don't be openly hostile. Like Elon Musk left California because a, like California tried killing Uber and the gig economy. You have a state assembly woman saying uh, uh, F Elon Musk. Yep, I saw that. Like those kinds of those are the kinds of things that that if I don't have to be in San Francisco, I'm not going to be there. 
Yeah. Like, I'm not going to pay $4,000 a month for a one bedroom to step over human feces outside of my building. Like <laughs> I'm uh, not going to do that. Yeah. So that's where I think cities like Chicago, cities like New York, uh, cities like DC. I, I love DC. DC is, is more expensive, but think of all the international brain power that is centered in DC year in and year out. Mm -hmm. Like, like you want to work with, with India, the, in, the Indian embassy is right down the street. Yeah. Like, like those, those are the kind of things that you can do um, in DC and you have incredible inter intellectual talent there that you don't have any place else. And, and for me, that like, like those are the kinds of things that, that I'm really looking forward to in this kind of decentralization. So uh, uh, before we wrap up, what, what's your, what are you excited about uh, for the future? Like in, in the, at least in the near future, let's say, what, what are the things that are, uh, keep you hopeful are inspiring you as you, you know, as we go into 2021 and beyond? Well, in tech, like I've been doing a whole lot more angel investing in the last couple of months. Uh, and I've seen some really, really, really cool stuff in the creator economy, um, kind of in the, de in the unbundling of large um, kind of talent, like CAA is no longer, I think, relevant in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Like I'm seeing a ton of how can we monetize creators? I think Substack has, has shown that. I think Patreon's dropped the ball tremendously. Um, I think there's a ton of room there in the blending of kind of fintech and creator tech. Um, if you told, like, I'm, you're on Substack, if you told people five years ago, they'd be spending 60 bucks a month subscribing to just one uh, uh, one author Substack. Um, they were told you're crazy, like, uh, like <laughs> times. Like, I think you're starting to see the unbundling uh, morning, like the morning brew style content mm -hmm. is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think biohacking like I, I levels is a really interesting it's a continuous glucose monitor paired with um in a more kind of consumer friendly application uh that anyone can can use they just raised i think like 10 million dollars from andreessen I, i'm i eight sleep is doing something similar uh I, there's a ton of kind of this biohacking mm -hmm. to allow humans to improve uh and perform uh at a higher level than they otherwise would um i think Med, I think Corona has forced that, um, forced people to kind of more focus on that. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really interested to see kind of where we are in a year from now, if companies like Levels have taken off, Whoop, is, I think now worth a billion dollars. They were worth like 30 million, like three or four years ago when I first got it. Uh, it's really interesting to see kind of that acceleration. So uh, super long biotech and greater tech. Nice, nice. So if people want to get a hold, a hold of you or follow you or, you know, um, especially you're an angel investor. So do you have a, any particular avenues by which you want people to approach you with any particular ideas or how, how, how can people follow you on social media? Yeah. So Twitter at Zach Gleason, Z-A-C-K-G-L-E-E-S-O-N. Uh, and then Zach at ZachGleason.com. Um, I tell people and get a hold of me on Twitter. If I don't respond, shoot me an email. Um, but yeah, no, I'm super accessible. Um, always kind of looking around at different things. So happy to chat. Cool. No, this, is, this has been great. Uh, and I'll put that info in the, in the show notes. Um, Zach, thanks a lot for this. This is, <laughs> I've learned a lot uh, just in this talk. So I'm hoping everyone that's listening and watching will too. Um, I, and hopefully we'll have you on here again at some point and uh, we'll do a little bit of a follow-up uh, follow uh, talk. Well, Zach, thanks a lot. And everybody, we're signing off.